Hey there, Captain Roger, Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army. Uh, grace and peace to each and every one of you today. Hey, if you want to join us in person, you can do that every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. at our Grass Valley, California, Alta Street location. We would love to have you. But uh, right now, you and I, we're going to have a little conversation just digitally here. All right. Um, many of you probably know who Alexander Pope was. He was a poet and a satirist back in the early 18th century, and he once wrote, Some people never learn anything for this reason, because they understand everything too soon. And as we've worked our way through the book of Acts, we've seen that a big part of the struggle Paul and his allies have had in reaching out to others has been the difficulty some people have with any idea that seems like it could be new or different from what they've known or have been taught before. How could Jesus, a man born within the lifetime of many of those Paul preached to, be the Jewish Messiah that they'd all been waiting centuries for? And even if he was, how could that possibly be good news for the Gentiles, people who had never had any Jewish blood or religious training in their lives? In many cases, they were afraid that this new teaching would change things in ways they couldn't expect and had no control over, and so they lashed out, refusing to listen to those who had brought them gospel teaching, who offered them evidence of Jesus' resurrection, who told them to replace their anger with forgiveness and their fear with love. Now, in Acts 18, we're going to see some of these same resistances and same arguments rise up and threaten to blow into a larger conflict. But we'll also see that there is nothing to fear when we simply trust and follow where God leads. So grab your Bibles or your copy of our Acts journal and flip to Acts chapter 18. We're going to start today in verse 1. Acts 18 verse one. And I'm reading today, if you're curious, from the New International Version, 2011 edition. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. And we're going to stop there because there's a lot going on here, but let me just hit the highlights. After he was in Athens, Paul went on to Corinth. Now, Corinth was one of the most important cities in Greece. Since Julius Caesar had ordered it to be rebuilt, it had become the very model of a Roman colony city. And its location on the Corinthian Isthmus meant that it was both at the center of Greece and it had ports both in the eastern and western Mediterranean. The city sponsored the Isthmian Games every two years, which brought in thousands of travelers, too. It was the crossroads of the ancient Near East. Religiously, it was a city filled with plurality. Greek and Roman gods had temples and statues and other places of worship, and a large and well-established colony of Jews lived there as well, which meant there was at least one and probably more synagogues where they would gather to practice their faith. The synagogue is possibly where Paul met Aquila and Priscilla, who were Jesus' followers that had recently come from Rome after Claudius, the emperor, had expelled Jews from the city because of their debates about Jesus, which had become so disruptive to life that they were causing riots. And Claudius is like, you guys, I just, you, you gotta go. 
Now, to the Romans, the people of God were a bunch of crazy atheists because of their insistence on only worshipping one God. And when their arguments leaked into the daily life of the empire, it didn't really take much encouragement for Caesar to invite them out of his capital city for the duration of his reign. And now, this is about a year after that event, Paul is here meeting two of those who needed to leave. Like him, they were leather workers, and that seems to have brought about an invitation for Paul to stay and work together in ways that would benefit them all. Also, maybe surprisingly, these two, Priscilla and Aquila, as they're usually referred to, they were Christians. Now, how did a pair of Jews in Rome happen to come to faith in Jesus? Well, we know that there had been converts among the Romans in the time of Jesus and in the very first days of the church. Remember back in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit first came to fill the believers, that when Peter and the others had begun to preach about Jesus, people from many lands heard and understood them. Again, this is Acts 2 at verse 7 uh, through, let's go through 11 today. Um, Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Man. So we know Romans were part of that initial message from which we know thousands had given their lives to Jesus. Now, to the religious Jews who heard the message, Jesus was this long-awaited king of kings that God had promised would come, the Messiah. And to any non-Jews who heard and believed, Jesus was Lord. Whether they believed he was God or one sent by God, they knew that he was the one who would lead them into the new kingdom of God and rule over them with his message of love and community. If they were afraid of the new things established as part of this ancient set of beliefs coming to pass in the person of Jesus, they were willing to set that aside and follow where he directed them to go. Which is what Paul wants for all people, but especially for his own people. Um, now, we've seen that in every city, it's Paul's practice to go first to the Jewish places of worship and share the good news with them. We've also seen that, well, this usually does win many people to Christ. It tends to bring up some staunch opposition as well. Um, Acts 17, verses 4 through 6, Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Six days a week, Paul was Paul the tent maker. <clears throat> he worked his trade alongside his companions, Aquila and Priscilla, probably out of a storefront at the street side of the home that they shared, maybe at a stall in the central marketplace weekly or more often if business could sustain it. And on the Sabbath day, 
he would stop working his trade and begin working the crowds that gathered in the meeting places of his people, sharing with them stories of Jesus and his teaching and debating the truths and meanings behind passages of scripture which point to the Prince of Peace being a suffering servant for the people rather than the warrior Messiah coming to soak the land in Roman blood that so many of his contemporaries were preaching. And when Silas and Timothy finally caught up to him, they brought with them a gift of financial support from the followers of the way in Macedonia, which Paul would write about with thanksgiving in his letter to the Philippians, who were part of giving the gift. And he also brought it up in one of the letters he sent back to the church at Corinth later on, reminding them that he had worked a trade rather than ask them to support him during the extended time that he was there. Even though in their city... Working with your hands was considered a lower caste way of life. It was looked down on by a lot of people who thought that the blessings and approval of the gods meant elevating people above menial labor. Paul would write this uh, in Second Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I wasn't a burden to anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. Now, despite his faithfulness, not everyone would listen to Paul's message. Even after he received the gift and was able to devote himself to preaching the gospel every day instead of just on the Sabbath, there were those who treated him and the word of Jesus as if they were somehow beneath them. They refused to believe that the Jewish Messiah could be good news for the Gentiles, that he would be Lord of all by any means except extermination and subjugation of the enemies of God's people. They were afraid of what accepting Jesus as Lord might mean for their traditions, the, the way of life they pursued, and probably most importantly, what it might mean for the positions of comfort and power that they were in. Paul, too, I think, found himself wondering if he'd done the right thing and shaking the dust of his own people off his clothing and moving on to preach to the Gentiles of the city. Had he done all he could to reach those he needed to reach? He needed some reassurance. But encouragement came right behind him. Look at Acts 18, uh, verses 7 through 11. Hang on just a second. Did I say Acts 17 last time? We're in Acts chapter 18. Yeah. If uh, you are watching this video and you've got to this point, post a comment that says, Ha ha, 18, and I will uh, arrange to send you a prize from our prize box. Now, uh, Acts 18, verses 7 through 11. Paul left the synagogue. Remember, this is Paul. He's leaving. He's shaking the dust off of his clothes. He's probably sad. He's leaving his own people behind. He's storming off, essentially. Verse 7, Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. 
So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So what we just read is that Paul walked out of the synagogue and right into the home of a God-fearing family next door. And the leader of the synagogue and his whole household were right behind him. And others came too, Jews and Gentiles alike. They believed in Jesus as Lord and they became followers of his way. I mean, how great is that? Immediate affirmation that this dramatic step away from those who were fighting against him was the right move. And then... Not right away, but one night, not long after this, a vision of Jesus telling him not to be afraid, but to continue on. I mean, to Paul, who's meeting every day right next to the place of his people, the place which he had to leave, the folks he wanted to reach and bring with him into the joy of salvation more than anyone, man, it must have been tough. Usually he would go to the Jews and then take the message to the Gentiles and then leave, but not here in Corinth. Here in Corinth, he remained among the people who opposed him. Oh, sure, he was with people who loved him and listened to him as well. But we all know that if there are ten people who loves us and one person who ignores us, it's that one person we find ourselves just focused on. Why don't they like us? Why can't they see that I'm a great guy? Why... Don't they hear what I'm trying to say to them? And I know we like to think of Paul as like some kind of Superman of the faith with no uncertainty, no questions, just this unwavering dedication and drive to share the gospel. Well, that wasn't him. He was just an ordinary person like you or I. He just did the best he could to follow Jesus. It didn't mean he was always sure of himself or his choices. And it certainly didn't mean he didn't have his own fears to face. In his first letter to the Corinthians, written two or three years after this experience, he wrote this, When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. He went on to write that he let the Holy Spirit speak so that faith would rest on God's power, not human understanding. He wanted them to see Jesus as Messiah and Lord rather than seeing him, Paul, as some kind of persuasive speaker or clever teacher who could sway them from their old ways. Hmm. He didn't want them to be afraid of going where Jesus was leading them, even if it brought them into new ideas, new ways of worshiping, and new people to worship alongside. Even if former friends pulled away and rejected the path of love that they were now on, so he did what he could to make sure that they knew God was in control. But there were still many who couldn't abide seeing things change and people move in new directions. They wanted to make Paul stop. Acts 18, verses 12 through 17. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people who worship God in ways contrary to the law. This man is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. 
I spent hours researching exactly what it means to worship God in a way contrary to the law. And then I started to write it all out to explain this to you. But knowing all the details doesn't add to the story for most people. So let me just give you the thumbnail here. The Romans allowed the nations that they conquered to continue their old worship practices and traditions so long as those were not morally offensive to Rome and so long as they were also not politically offensive. There was a great amount of tolerance allowed for ancient religious beliefs that met those guidelines. That didn't mean that they agreed with those other religions, but they tolerated them because they'd been around, they'd been part of that culture. Rome knew that trying to stamp out a people's culture made them rebellious, and so they usually avoided that. New teachings, however, were absolutely not allowed. I said before that the Romans regarded the Jews with some suspicion because their religious beliefs were very different from those of most other people. But even though they thought the Jewish people to be a superstitious bunch, they were willing to at least extend the umbrella of courtesy for an ancient religion to continue unmolested. Claudius had even decreed that the Jews be allowed to continue their religious practices and beliefs. It didn't mean that they didn't pay tribute to the... I'm sorry, it did mean that they didn't pay tribute to the emperor... And it meant they were not conscripted to serve in the legions. It also meant that the Jews were not allowed to disrupt other people's religious practices. They were provided what Dr. Ben Witherington refers to as an umbrella of protection as a known religion. The charge being offered against Paul by his Jewish opponents is that he is not one of them and that his teachings are not part of their beliefs or practices. See, if the Christian faith wasn't connected to Judaism, it wouldn't be protected by that umbrella, and that would mean it was a new religion which was not allowed. Now, this is a charge Paul was ready to defend against. Uh, Luke, both in his Gospel and in his book of Acts, stresses the idea that Jew and Gentile united as one is the fundamental heart of the Jewish faith. He doesn't stress the practices of the Jewish religion, but he does reinforce how much the way of Jesus is connected to the ancestral traditions, to the fathers of the faith, to God's intent for his people. Christianity wasn't and isn't a form of Judaism, but it is the plant which has sprouted from the seed of Judaism to fulfill the faith by becoming something more. So Paul, he's ready to respond to that charge against him. In verse 14, though, just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul, and Gallio showed no concern whatever. Now, Gallio. Gallio was the brother of Seneca, a uh, Roman statesman and philosopher people still quote and revere today, and Seneca reserved some of his highest praise for his brother, who seems to have been a highly competent and intelligent leader. Seneca also said this about him, No human is so pleasant to any person as Gallio is to everyone. That's something I think we should all aspire to have said about us, don't you? Don't you want to be known as someone who is pleasant to everyone? 
In this case, though, he's acting in his judicial capacity and not particularly trying to be pleasant. Like many Romans, Gallio had some anti-Semitic tendencies, which are bleeding through in what he says, fair though it may be. He starts by saying, you Jews, and goes on to completely discount their complaint. He refuses to even let the trial get past the opening charge. He tells them they're wasting his time. As far as he's concerned, this whole matter is an internal dispute among their own people, and they shouldn't resolve the, uh, sorry, they should resolve the argument on their own, not in court. Don't you wish we had more judges these days who would look at some of the ridiculous things people bring to court and say, hey, stop wasting my time with your nonsense. Now, Jewish leaders had charged that Paul wasn't one of them and that the Christians weren't part of their religious faith, and the court was has very definitely made a ruling on this. It says, yes, they are. I have no problem seeing that. Why can't you? Now, don't think that the judge has taken Paul's side, though. When we read that he drove them off, that included Paul and his supporters as well. And his ruling leaves no room for appeal. He affirms the right of the Jewish community to settle their own affairs, even as he affirms that the followers of the way are part of that community. His disdain for Jews and their disputes, it's obvious in his action, in his ruling, and in the inaction about what happens to Sosthenes as he's being dragged out. The leader of the synagogue, he would have been the man who'd brought the charges, and his beating may have been seen as justice for taking up valuable time, or it could have just been because he was a Jew who was creating trouble in Corinth. Or... And this may actually be the most likely. He could have been seized and beaten by his own people. Go with me for a second here. As the man who brought the charges on behalf of the community, his failure to have their complaint acted on in a positive way would have been seen as bringing shame onto the community. And the cavalier dismissal by Gallio would have been seen as having embarrassed the community in the eyes of the proconsul. And the statement that he made would have been seen as Gallio taking the charges being brought before him as an insult to the court, which would have further upset people that perhaps Sosthenes was somehow making them look bad. And some suggest that this rejection by his own people, this beating by his own people, made Sosthenes evaluate whether he was on the right side of things. One church tradition says that he accepted Jesus and became a follower of the way soon after this, and that when Paul left Corinth, Sosthenes went with him. And as wild as that may sound, there possibly is support for this in Scripture. Look back at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and see how he starts it. This is chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's possible that it could be a different guy named Sosthenes who's co-signing on this letter to the people in Corinth with Paul. It seems a lot more likely that it's the former synagogue leader who, having come to realize that Jesus is both the Jewish Messiah and Lord of all, put his allegiance in the resurrected Savior and joined the company with Paul. 
What a great example that would be of someone refusing to be afraid while they follow Jesus into a whole new way of life. Paul, we know, was in Corinth for quite a while, more than 18 months before he moved on. We'll talk about that next time, though. So, is this all just a nice story? Or is there some meaning we can take from it which might help us live our lives to the utmost today? Well, we don't want to be the kind of people that Pope was talking about when he said that thing about not being able to learn anything because we understood everything too soon. I think we see very clearly in this story that people who decide they understand everything and that they have no need to examine those beliefs or evaluate them or allow them to change as time goes on are people who cannot grow into the creation that God intended them to be. I mean, things change, circumstances change, culture changes, and God's covenant was even changed by the person, the teaching, and example of Jesus. In the history we looked at today, everyone involved needed to realize for themselves that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, but he was more than that. He was Lord for all the Gentiles, but he was more than that. He is more than that. He is Lord of all. He is the anointed King of kings that God promised to his people and to all people. It's by following Jesus that we enter into the kingdom of God, which is a whole new way of life. One where we seek out community with one another through the radical love and inclusion offered by Jesus to each one of us. And that kingdom, it's not something we enter into later on when we die. It's something you enter into when you make that decision to give your allegiance, give your life, give your direction to Christ. But to do that... We need to reject the fear that drives us to try to cling to old ways and traditions. The, the, we've always done it this ways, which fill our minds with uncertainty and make us afraid to follow Jesus wherever he leads. You gotta get out of your bubble. Are you comfortable with the way things are going? Are you happy with everything in your world? Well, then I'm gonna suggest to you that you're not paying attention. The world we live in needs the love of Jesus, and it needs people who will stand up and say, I'm tired of being afraid. I'm going to follow Jesus wherever he leads. Will you take that on? The Lord is calling you to come follow him. Don't be afraid. Speak up. Don't be silent. God is with you, and he has many people in this world. So go spread the way of Jesus. Go spread the way of love. Go spread the way of peace, the way of community to everyone you can in every way you can. Don't wait for me to do or say something else. Your allegiance isn't to me. It's to Jesus. So get out there and represent his kingdom on earth. Grace and peace to you. I'll see you next week. We'll see how you're doing.